From NBC5 and the Dallas Morning News, this is the Lone Star Politics Podcast. I'm Chris Blake. As we enter the final five weeks of the Texas legislative session, we keep our attention on Austin. Bills impacting voting, the state power grid, transgender student-athletes, permitless carry, and policing are all making their way through at least one of the chambers, plus the latest on COVID-19, and a slew of local elections in North Texas on May 1st. To discuss all that, Julie Fine and Gromer Jeffers will be joined by State Representatives Raphael Anchia, Matt Shaheen, and Sanfronia Thompson. Then Julie talks to Dr. Anthony Fauci about the coronavirus, and NBC5's Ken Kaltoff breaks down the Dallas City Council races. Before we get started, please take a second to rate, review, and subscribe to the Lone Star Politics Podcast. The 87th Texas Legislature comes to a close at the end of May. Lawmakers have dealt with obstacles this session, like COVID-19 and the February winter storm. Voting bills have sparked controversy, and now people nationwide recognize the acronym ERCOT. In a joint interview, State Reps Rafael Anchia, a Democrat from Dallas, and Matt Shaheen, a Republican from Plano, talked to Julian Gromer about the last five weeks of the session. Joining us now to discuss the final stretch is Representative Rafael Anchia of Dallas and Representative Matt Shaheen of Plano. Thank you both for being here. You bet. Thanks for having us. Let's begin with several voting bills in front of the legislature, one which has already passed in the Senate. Some call these bills security, others suppression because they limit early voting hours and make changes to the mail-in ballot process. What do you both think of these bills? Let's start with you, Representative Anchia. Well, Julie and Gromer, thanks for having me on today. It's good to be with, here with my North Texas neighbor, Matt Shaheen. Listen, um, uh, oftentimes when we when we seek to do legislation, we narrowly tailor the uh, the legislation to deal with problems that we might have in a particular area of the law. Clearly, there have been uh, no cases uh, that have been articulated by any of the proponents of these uh, voting bills that suggest there was a lack of integrity during the last election cycle. I mean, I think the, the, the impetus for these bills is kind of a continuation of that big lie articulated by the ex-president who said that there was uh, somehow, you know, uh, people of color were stealing elections uh, from, uh, from his campaign. Our own Republican Secretary of State has said that that's not the case. There have been no, there's no evidence put on. So I don't see a need for these things. Uh, they're, they're broad, they're sweeping, and it'll just make it harder for people to vote. I don't think we need to be doing that at a time uh, when we need to strengthen our democracy by um, giving people more access to the ballot box. Yeah, well, the legislation is necessary. There were some lessons learned this last November. For example, Harris County had mailed in uh, or had mailed uh, mail-in uh, ballot applications to voters that are ineligible. We need to make it clear that's not part of the process. Uh, the AG's office in the state of Texas has a backlog of about 500 cases of election integrity. So look, we're not going to do anything at all. It's totally unacceptable to have any type of legislation that suppresses voter turnout. We're not going to do that. We had, by the way, just uh, record-breaking voter turnout uh, last November. The hours that the uh, election integrity bill has is 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. Those are actually more hours than we vote here in Collin County. And, you know, we just have some reasonable adjustments to um, election integrity here in the state of Texas that are from lessons learned last November. Is there any room for compromise representatives uh, on an election bill, one that, you know, maybe has has some security in it uh, in the mail-in process, but maybe some provisions that could make it easier for people to vote? Uh, we, we're always going to work in a bipartisan fashion. I mean, 98, 99 percent of the bills that we passed are in a bipartisan 
uh, faction. This, the Texas legislature is nowhere near like uh, Washington, D.C. But yes, I think at the end of the day, I have a high level of confidence that this will be a bipartisan. If there's uh, more opportunities to expand access to voting, we're going to do that. But again, last November was record turnout in the state of Texas. Raphael. Yeah, if the approach was bipartisan, you, you know Democrats would be part of it. The Democrats have been shut out of the, the process of uh, drafting this bill. And Matt's right. Most of the work we do down here on behalf of people of Texas is done on a bipartisan fashion. Democrats and Republicans write the bills together. Unfortunately, with these voter suppression bills, that's not the case. They're clearly partisan. They're moving through in a heavy-handed way. Um, in fact, uh, you know, the, the, the members of uh, the Mexican-American Legislative Caucus and the Black Caucus tried to participate early on. They've been shut out of the process. And, uh, you know, I, I'm all for writing bills together. We passed a bunch of election integrity bills together uh, that have dealt with vote harvesting in, in past sessions. It's, that's just not the approach that's been taken by a majority this session. So I don't, I, unless we, we start over again and come up with something that everybody can have a hand in, then I don't, I don't think this will be a bipartisan effort. Let's turn now to the power grid. I'll start with you, Representative Anshia. Do you think there will actually be meaningful change to ensure that we don't have another storm? Yeah, we've, <laughs> I don't know if, if we can ensure that we won't have another storm. I think, in fact, we're going to, we're going to continue to have extreme weather. Uh, we've had 500 year events. It seems like every 10 years, whether they be droughts or hurricanes, tornadoes, or now uh, polar vortexes. Uh, so we need to make sure that we have a, a resilient grid. Uh, I'm really happy with the progress that we've made so far, but if we stop now and don't pass any additional bills related to weatherization, uh, then we will have only engaged in half measures. We're going to have a ton of risk this summer, uh, also winter of 2021, summer of 2022, and winter of 2022. We cannot leave this legislative session without closing the deal to make sure we have both electric grid security and then also uh, natural gas system uh, resiliency because um, – the, the bills that we've uh, passed right now are a good first step. They don't go far enough. Representative Shaheen, let me correct that question. Can we ensure that there will be legislation to make sure that a power grid failure doesn't happen again? We know we've been very successful. Uh, Representative Anshi and I spent 46 hours together in February uh, looking at hearing testimony on what went wrong and what corrective actions can be taken. We've already, the House has already passed significant pieces of legislation where we identify what the critical infrastructure is in our state to make sure that, for example, uh, uh, gas was shut down and uh, was not transported to some of our power plants, which forced the power plants to go down. So we, we have legislation to make sure that doesn't happen. We've got disaster recovery standards uh, that will be put in place and uh, monitored by the PDC to make sure that there's disaster recovery uh, operations that can take in uh, be taken into consideration next time there is an extreme weather event. We're forming the Texas Energy Disaster Reliability Council so that any kind of emergency that happens without the state of Texas, throughout the state of Texas, we're going to be a lot more coordinated in our response. So there's quite a bit that we've already done, but um, Mr. Anshia is right. There's some other pieces of legislation that are still making their way through the process. And I think uh, just stay tuned. We've got a little bit over a month to go. We'll get some more legislation passed as well to make sure that that doesn't happen again. Uh, Representative uh, Shaheen, let's stay with you. Quickly, this one uh, question. The House passed a budget uh, Thursday. Uh, give me one thing that you think went right, one thing that you wish you had gotten in, into the budget. And the same for you next yeah. after that. Go ahead. 
Yeah, we passed uh, last night, actually, late not, uh, last night, we passed a $246 billion budget. And we've got a lot right, Romer. I know you have one, but I mean, we're, we're funding all of our priorities. Probably the most exciting thing is where other states were cutting education funding because they're just in a lot harder shape in the state of Texas. We've increased uh, education funding. Uh, we're just a big job growth city, um, and we're doing really well economically compared to a lot of other states. So we're really well positioned compared to a lot of other states. Yeah, I think the outcome was good. It was a unanimous vote. Uh, I was really happy the Democrats were able to defeat a bunch of Republican am amendments that were very anti-business, seeking to sort of punish business for speaking out against voter suppression bills or any policy that they didn't like, candidly. Uh, they were violative of the First Amendment, in my view, and uh, I'm glad those ended up not getting on. I was really happy that for North Texas, we uh, got some significant planning uh, funds in place for a North Texas psychiatric hospital. It's been long overdue for us, and this is going to be um, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars that is going to flow through to, to North Texas so that we can finally, for a, a, a metro area of our size, have a psychiatric hospital that deal with, that'll deal with some of the mental health issues that we are uh, experiencing in community. Representatives, we thank both of you for joining us. That segment went really quickly, so thank you very much. A special session is likely to address redistricting due to delayed results of the 2020 census. Another issue on the table is policing. Long before the Derek Chauvin verdict last week, Texas lawmakers filed police reform bills. Last week on the podcast, Julian Gromer talked about policing with State Representative Carl Sherman and Detective Frederick Frazier. Sherman is a Democrat from DeSoto and the author of Bo's Law, named for the Dallas man killed in his own apartment by an off-duty police officer. Frazier is the chairman of the Dallas Police Association Political Action Committee. You can hear that conversation in last week's episode. This week we hear from State Representative Sinfronia Thompson, a Democrat from Houston. She filed the George Floyd Act, which addresses chokeholds, use of force, and qualified immunity. Here's the representative with Julian Gromer. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Representative, you authored this act. Tell us what it does, and do you think you can get the support for it? Well, let me just tell you what. I don't believe uh, in ever giving up until you know the last moment uh, when the fat lady sings, and that hasn't happened yet. So we're still trying to get it done. We have not only the George Floyd Act, but we have, stand we have separated out into standalone bills and uh, members of the uh, Black Caucus, both House and Senate, have been trying to push forward on these pieces of legislation, not just this time, but for many, many sessions, uh, long before George Floyd was impacted by that awful moment in which he lost his life. We think that all citizens would benefit from it, not just African Americans and brown citizens, but all citizens uh, of the state. We want to make sure that the police uh, conduct reflects the community in which it represents, which we know right now it does, but we, but we see a great need in which there's a, a great change. We see a need and change in chokeholds, in uh, the duty to uh, intervene and to render aid. We need a great, we see a great need in, in, the, uh, in the use of force and making sure the disciplinary uh, matrix are kept and updated and that those disciplinary conducts does not uh, become uh, just a momentary fixes, but permanent fixes, just like when persons commit crimes within our state, they usually have those uh, crimes on their records until, uh, until they expire. And we think that police officers should have a 
record that follows them. So if they move from one municipality to another, those municipalities should know what they are, uh, what they are buying into. And if they want to hire a police officer with a poor, a bad disciplinary record, then they know the liability in which they are assuming. So we um, we think it's absolutely necessary for officers to have a duty to uh, intervene, to de-escalate the situations. And more importantly, what are we to do? Uh, what do we expect? We expect law and order to be kept, but not person's life to be lost as a result of that. While we want the law officers to be able to go home at the end of their time in which they are serving from day to day, we want to make sure that the citizens are able to go home also. Representative Thompson, with the time we have left, I know the, the removal of qualified immunity has been a sticking point in the past. Is there a, a compromise on that, or is that something that you will assist, insist on? Well, we're, we're, we're unable to be able to uh, compromise on that at all. Okay. Uh, I, think it, I think we need qualified immunity eliminated, um, but uh, it's been very difficult to get support, enough support on, on my side as well as the other side. Um, and police officers said that's something that they need. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's qualified immunity is not a law. It's something that, that the Supreme Court uh, fashioned back in the 1800s when slaves were free to prevent the Ku Klux Klan from taking advantage of them. And uh, it has evolved into many, many other things over a period of time in which it has not served both uh, the public well because it, it has the tendency to ignore the egregious conduct of police officers and not hold them accountable for their conduct while we're expecting them to enforce the law to hold our citizens accountable. Representative, so they want to live I'm sorry. Above the law. Representative, we really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for being with us to discuss this. Thank you for inviting me. Last week, the Biden administration reached a milestone. It administered its 200 millionth dose of the COVID-19 vaccine in the president's first 100 days in office. Julie spoke to Biden's chief medical advisor and the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, Dr. Anthony Fauci. You remember when he first, when it came uh, into office, he was talking about the challenges of getting a hundred million in a first hundred days or one million per day. We now, his hundred days are not even up yet and we've reached double that, which really tells you that the vaccine rollout program has really been very successful. We're averaging over 3 million vaccinations per day, which is really quite good. We're, we're shipping out about 28 million to 30 million per week to the places that will be receiving them. And if you look at the track record now, one half of the US adult population uh, is, is vaccinated and one third of the adults are fully vaccinated. You know, one half of the adults population is really had at least one shot. That's pretty good. So if you get one half of everybody who's an adult in America to get one shot, that's good. And to have one third of the adults fully vaccinated that's also really very good. You know, after the Johnson & Johnson pause, there are people that were already concerned about taking the vaccine, and then that happened. What do you say to them? You know, what I say is to look at it from a different perspective. First of all, that adverse event that occurred in the six 
women with the J and J is exceedingly rare. It occurred in six million, six, excuse me, six women out of seven million. That is less than one per million. They paused. When you look at the, how rare that is, that is less likely than getting hit by lightning. So that is really a very, very, very low level of risk. But nonetheless, just because we want to be extra specially careful about safety, the CDC and the FDA call the pause to take a look and see, are there any other cases? Alert physicians, if they run into a patient or a patient comes into their office with this problem, how best to treat the patient. So the bottom line of what I'm saying, Julie, is that I believe that this, this reflects how seriously we take safety. So when the FDA and the CDC says that a vaccine is safe, you can really believe it's safe because they paused a trial on the basis of an exceedingly rare complication. So if they're going to do that for an exceedingly rare one, you can be sure they're looking really carefully at safety. So for the people that are still saying, you know what, I'm not getting it. What do you say to them? Well, you know, you appeal to them. And, and, and the way I appeal to them is too. First of all, it's often young people who don't want to get vaccinated. And it's understandable because they perceive correctly that the chances of their getting seriously ill are much, much lower than an elderly person or a person with an underlying condition. But many young people do have underlying conditions that would put them at risk of getting into trouble. Diabetes, obesity, hypertension that they didn't recognize that they had. So they could get in trouble. And we're seeing more and more young people who require hospitalization. The other thing that I think is missed and understandably missed is that if you get infected and you're a young person, we'll say, and you don't get any symptoms at all, you say to yourself, so what's the big deal? I got infected, I didn't get any symptoms. Well, in many respects, it is a big deal because you could, by the fact that you're infected, inadvertently and innocently transmit the infection to someone else who then could transmit it to someone who really could get into trouble. That somebody could be somebody's mother or father or wife or husband or someone who's getting chemotherapy for cancer. You don't want to be part of the dynamics that is contributing to the spread of the infection. And the best way to do that is to get vaccinated yourself and you get the twofer. A, you don't get into trouble. And B, you don't cause someone else to get into trouble. Here in the state of Texas, there's no longer a mask mandate. You know, what do you say to people about that? Well, if you take a look at the number of infections we are still getting in this country per day, it's somewhere around an average, a seven-day average of around 60,000. That's an exceedingly high number. And so the risk of coming into contact with someone who's infected, who might transmit it to you, is reasonably high when you have that much infection in the community. So I say the better part of Allah to be prudent 
is just continue to wear a mask until we get the level of infection much, much lower than it is. I know this is a tough one to predict the future, but so often you hear people say, when does life go back to normal? Or yeah. is there a normal anymore? You know, I believe that there is, and it's really within our control to get it back to normal. It will be a gradual process. It's not gonna be like turning a light switch on or a light switch off. But the one thing we do know for sure is that the more people get vaccinated, if we can get the overwhelming majority of the population vaccinated, at least 70 or 85%, plus the people who've been infected, who are now well, but protected because they're immune, if we could get that total way up there, I don't know exactly what that number, people ask me, well, give me an exact number. The reason we don't know that number is that we've never really been in a situation with this virus before. We can give you precise information, information about things like measles and tell you exactly what the herd immunity number is for measles, but we don't yet have enough information. But we do know, and this we're solid with, that the more and more people you get vaccinated, the 3 million people each day who get vaccinated, the closer and closer you get to what we're talking about returning to normal. What about booster shots? We're now starting to hear about booster shots. You know, so many people spend so much time on the computer trying to get their first shots. Do you think there will be booster shots needed? You no, know, when, when you get your, your for like take Pfizer, which made that announcement. So Pfizer, you get a prime, and then 21 days later, you get a boost. And within a couple of weeks of that, you're really very well protected. The question is, how long does that protection last? And we don't know the answer to that, but we're following people on a regular basis to see if that level starts to go down. And if it starts to go down, you're going to start seeing more breakthrough infections. And at that point, you're going to want to boost people to get their level of protection back up to where it should be. Now, it may be you need to get boosted every year. I don't know that for sure, but that's certainly something we need to entertain that possibility. And if we do, there's nothing a big deal about that because, you know, we generally do that every year with influenza. I'm not saying we'll have to do it every year, but if we need a boost, let's get a boost. It's worth it. And before I let you go, the president announcing that essentially there will be tax credits for small businesses that provide time off for their employees to get the vaccine. How much do you think that will help get people to do so? You know, our, our strategy is, and our feeling, Julie, is we're going to try and do everything we possibly can because we feel it's so important for people to protect themselves, to protect their family, and to protect their community. So if that's going to be a tax credit, fine. If that means getting the community core to get people who are trusted messengers out there, speaking to people, that's okay too. Whatever it takes, we really need to get people vaccinated. Dr. Fauci, we appreciate your time. Thank you, Julie. I appreciate you having me. We now turn our attention to the May 1st election, specifically Dallas City Council races. All 14 spots are on the ballot and three council members have reached term limits. Adam Madrano, Jennifer Staubach-Gates, and Lee Kleinman. Dallas Mayor Eric Johnson has also taken the step of endorsing some challengers over incumbents in other council races. 
NBC5's Ken Kaltoff joins Julian Gromer to talk about those races. This is a pleasure. We have Ken Kaltoff joining us today, who I refer to as Double K. Thanks for being Hello, with buddy. us, Double K. Hello, um, talk, to us, talk to us a little bit about the city council races. I mean, it's such an interesting dynamic this year. It really is. It's a very interesting year. All 14 of the city council seats are contested, and that's somewhat unusual. Sometimes one of the incumbents will be um, without an opponent. Uh, sometimes it's just a token opponent, but uh, all 14 actually have contests this year, and some of them are bigger than others. Uh, the, the district uh, that represents uh, Fair Park and South Dallas has quite a contest going on. Adam Bezel do his district. Yeah, um, you know, you call him Double K. I call him Chicago Ken. When I heard yeah. that voice, I knew he had spent some time in my hometown. Yeah. So, but yeah. Ken. Um, yeah, we grew up there, all right. Yeah. Chicago Gomer. That's right. Um, tell me about the mayor's role in, in this election and how important it is for him. Because right now, Ken, he doesn't have a council that he can really count to aid or, or work with, you know, in that respect. And I know he's endorsed in some races. So tell us about his role in all of this. Well, some of the council members would say that the mayor hasn't made it very easy for him to work with them, for them to work with him, uh, that he's been somewhat combative about some things. But indeed, yes, on some big votes, they didn't go his way. Uh, the biggest of them was about the budget last year when the mayor wanted to reduce the salaries of many city employees, especially high-ranking city employees like the city manager. Uh, the council members refused to do that during the pandemic. They said that we need these employees, that they aren't paid all that well, uh, with the exception of the city manager, who's paid pretty well. But a lot of the other engineers and people that are top city employees don't get paid that much compared to the private sector. And they thought they would just drive them away if they started slashing their salaries. So they refused to go along with that. But that's what the mayor wanted to do instead of trimming police overtime that the majority of city council voted to do. And a lot of folks said, oh, that's defunding police. Well, police did end up getting even more money in the budget than they had before. So they weren't exactly defunded, but some portion of overtime was reduced. And that has been the biggest issue in this election this year. That's what the mayor has been going after several of the incumbents over. He's been actively yeah, campaigning. I think it's safe to say if you tweet about these people, uh, if you tweet about their opponents and not about them, tweet against them, I would say that's campaigning for the opposition. And the mayor has done that with at least three of the races. And I think that's fairly unusual in Dallas City Hall politics. So Ken, it's next Saturday night and you know people are watching the races. What's the one that you're going to focus the most, you're going to focus the most on that you really think is the nail biter? I think Adam Bezel Dewis district is quite interesting because he has so many opponents, quite a few of them, more than uh, an incumbent might typically garner. And uh, some of it is being lobbed against him, some of the opposition because of his vote in favor of cutting that overtime. Um, some, of it, some folks are accusing him of defunding police. Uh, other folks have said that he's been doing his job as best he could to serve that district. Uh, he is Hispanic. 
in a district that typically elects an African-American. It's South Dallas and Fair Park. So um, that's a tough seat, perhaps, for him to hold on to with so many opponents. I think most everybody expects that he'll have a runoff. There could be several runoffs with some of these large uh, fields of candidates and other races, too. But I think that one might be the most interesting. And that is one of the races where Mayor Johnson has endorsed one of uh, endorsed an opponent. Ken, typically in most of these council districts, turnout is very low. Is there any reason to expect this time around that it'll be higher or are we looking at your typical dismal uh, city council turnout? City I council think it's typical turnout. low turnout city council election, especially since there is not a mayor's race this year in Dallas. The mayor gets to uh, keep his seat for four years. The council members only get two at a time, so they have to run every two years. It's like they're running for election all the time, whereas the mayor can sit back this time knowing that he's not on the ballot. And so uh, I think there probably won't be very big turnout, but maybe in some of these districts where there is a lot of excitement, uh, maybe, maybe in that one, perhaps there will be a few more people. But yes, it's a very small percentage of the public that ends up electing these city council members year after year. And some folks find that to be pretty disappointing. Ken, we so appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. We know we're getting you in the middle of the workday and thanks for letting me borrow your desk for the lighting. All good, thank you so much. Another high profile race on the ballot next week is for Fort Worth mayor. NBC5 Scott Gordon broke down that race on last week's show. Early voting runs through Tuesday and election day is May 1st. A runoff election is a near certainty for at least some of the races with so many candidates in the running. That would take place in early June. Thanks to state representatives Rafael Anchia, Matt Shaheen, and Sanfronia Thompson, Dr. Anthony Fauci, and Ken Kaltoff for joining us this week. Stay up to date on everything related to Texas politics at NBCDFW.com slash Lone Star Politics. We'll talk to you next week.